This week on Ford, the president of the Philadelphia 76ers, the man who traded for James Harden twice, uh, and who's responsible for getting Jeremy Lin away from the Knicks. This week on Forward, Daryl Morey. Daryl, Daryl, Daryl. <laughs> What's up, Andrew? I'm wearing this math hat in your honor, bro. <laughs> I love it. I know. Because, you know, that was my NBA bubble hat. I know. I was so freaking grateful. So we were just talking about the game last night and how insane it was. Did you catch it? I, you know, the, the Sixers might have been playing, so you might not have caught it. Well, not only are the Sixers playing, I'm in Bologna, Italy. So <laughs> we're testing the limits of technology today. Um, I was at a uh, a game I have to watch for the NBA draft coming up, so I didn't miss it. Yeah. Oh, well, so that's one of the things we're going to ask you about, brother. Is like, how the hell are you, are like do you do your job as an NBA GM? I mean, like, you know, like what are the things you pay attention to? But first, we're going to talk about the game that you didn't see because there are some people here who freaking saw this thing and it was total <laughs> madness. Did you hear no about how, what what madness it was? Uh, I sort of heard indirectly. The lead changed a million times. and <laughs> It was the craziest college basketball game I think I can remember. And it was so oh. freighted. And like the, the New Orleans Superdome was like jam-packed. You could just see like the thousands upon thousands of people. And they all had either Duke or UNC colors on. Like the whole thing was like, like this gathering together of these massive tribes. And I have friends who are Dukies and they felt obligated to get to New Orleans because it's Coach K's last game, the rest of it. Like <laughs> so. I, I'm enjoying it. I like Duke deserves it. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about that. And uh, we can bring in some people here who are actually we're having some thoughts about this very same thing. Um, so I didn't know what to like. So so Kate was just describing as a Kentucky fan. She didn't know who to root for. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I think the one hard. thing I found interesting is both Duke and North Carolina fans, neither of them wanted this game. They thought that their lives would be ruined if they lost. So they, they the, the downside was much bigger than the upside for every fan I spoke to. So. Well, I, I think that that the players, I think that the, the, the Duke players, it felt like the weight affected them a little bit. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else watching that game felt that. Like, like it, it felt like the crush of history <laughs> was on them. For sure. They didn't, and, and UNC felt much freer. Uh, it, it was such a fascinating game. Uh, you know, there were moments when it's it seemed to me like Duke was more talented and like the talent was going to take over. That often happens. But it, in a one game... One game is one game. Like from a scouting perspective, they, these games actually are not very different from the regular season game. So you, you learn a little bit, but you often learn misleading things. So I I don't want to talk too much. I think we got no no. Let's about. open up with that because I think everyone here would love to freaking hear this. Sure. Um. So so you are tasked with making uh, multi million dollar decisions up the wazoo. Uh, and the most attention gets paid to college basketball during the tournament. Um, so if you're evaluating prospects, which you are, uh, do you guys have your own draft pick this year? Yeah, we, well, it's it's up in the air, but it's likely we'll have it, yes. Yeah, yeah. so uh, how much do you weight turn the uh, performance in the tournament versus everything else? So the the tournament games, like, they're, they're valued a little bit more. Does that make sense? So we... We look at games against tougher competition uh, as slightly more important, but we don't necessarily treat uh, a, a strong opponent in the tournament very differently from uh, a strong opponent uh, during the regular season. Uh, it turns out there's two types of errors that we can make in our business. There's you know, an error of selecting someone and they turn out poorly, but there's also the error of someone you could have selected that you did not select. Uh, and tuning across both those errors, uh, you can you can both overweight uh, and underweight the tournament. So you, we do a lot of tuning to sort of put a book properly weighted. And it turns out treating it pretty close to a 
a game against a regular season game against the starting opponent is about right. So th- this will be a lot of fun because I feel like the odds of you drafting uh, one of the top prospects are very, very low. You're not going to end up drafting uh, Paolo Bancaro, Chet. <laughs> just, just, just so you know, because you don't know the NBA rules. I can't actually talk about any of the players. Uh, that's one of our, we have lots of rules. Um, but uh, but I can talk about the teams. Um, and yeah, I would like, you know, we got Tyrese Maxey out of Kentucky, speaking of Kentucky. Uh, at 21, it was 21 or 22, I think 21 a couple of years ago, and he's turning out to be looks like a near all star. So don't 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 assume we can't get someone in the 20s. Well, I was just saying because one of the things I was noticing as like an NBA fan uh, is that people didn't know who the number one pick was going to be coming into the tournament. Um, most of the stuff I, I saw said Chet Holmgren was like the you know most popular consensus number one pick. Um, but that seems to have flipped and it seems to have flipped based on the tournament. And then there was part of me that was like, why would you change the, your opinion based upon these games? Um, and so that was one of the, the reasons why I think everyone's wondering. It's like, you know, is that, is that normal? That's an excellent question. It goes straight to the heart of my job, actually. So I, I love it. Yeah. So uh, what we do is we do like these process checkpoints, not to, you know, I'm sure there's a bunch of Philadelphia folks on here um whenever whenever a uh, hey matt whenever a uh, prospect moves dramatically up or down on your draft board and generally around this time teams have sort of a loose draft board you, you actually try to start to put your draft board together a little later it turns out the earlier you start to rank and evaluate in a formal way the more that those early rankings will get sticky uh, and give it more weight than they should in the final eval. So we try to push our rankings out to later uh, because of that. And but once you do set it and someone moves, maybe maybe they were in the draft last year and they pulled out and they're in the draft again this year. Now they're in a very different position. They're much higher or much lower. We the, one of our process checkpoints is why are they higher or lower? Is there actually new information? What is it? And is that information something that should have moved them that much? And to your point, yeah, if someone's moving a lot based on the tournament, that's almost for sure wrong. Uh, it's it's definitely been the case that people have overreacted to that information more than underreacted to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that, that, that does make sense. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So this game last night, wow. Um, But part of it was that as an NBA fan, I knew that Duke had like three or four first round, future first round draft picks uh, (laughs) on their roster. And then you would see, I think consensus going in had approximately zero. <laughs> like, like oh, they, I went to do, I went to a Duke game in Raleigh this year. And I thought maybe, maybe you're talking like seven or eight, not all coming into this draft, 
but over like players currently on the roster, it's it's very deep in potential NBA players. I thought. Yeah. So the so they, that was the the talent differential. You kind of sensed where periodically one of the Duke players would make a play where you're like, whoa, he <laughs> just like turned around and dunked it, or you know, <laughs> like did something um, really athletic. Uh, and, and so the natural thing that happened to me watching last night's game is I started rooting for UNC um, because uh, I think you naturally just start rooting for the less talented team. <laughs> that, 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 that's kind of scrappier, playing freer. Uh, and it was interesting. Well, I'll make a comment on that. So that there's this uh, very persistent bias and wagering wagering should be efficient and we're not allowed to wager on uh, anything nba but we are allowed to wager on say brackets and things like that um and there's a very known thing across gambling in all places horse racing is where it's most talked about where people like betting the long shots the underdogs in such a way that those bets are consistently inefficient which shouldn't happen so I'll give you an example that I have friends who do a lot of this. They have a fund where they just bet the favorites, consistently wow. bet the favorites. And, and Vegas and these these the lines makers know that this is true. They don't mind losing a little bit on the favorites because they get so much action on the long shots and they set the line. You don't get paid, you don't get paid enough, uh, if that makes sense, for these long shots. The, the long shots this year, right? They to win the tournament, you could bet that before the tournament. The odds of them of St. Peter's making it that far were so low that you should be paid way more than what their payouts are. Wow, this is so interesting. Uh because uh I definitely have been subject to that particular bias. And I like to think of myself as very bias free. Um, but when I have screwed around with uh, gambling, like I tend to bet the underdogs because I'm like, ooh, like that person, that's a dog. Like, you know, their chances are better than that. <laughs> people, people hate betting favorites because, for example, here's where it often comes up. Say college football, you know, you're, you're betting what's called the money line, which is I think Texas will be rice this weekend. And you bet $100 and you might make $2. That turns out to be often a very good bet, but people don't love it. It's just not exciting. We call it in the business sort of picking up, picking up quarters ahead of a bulldozer. So you're gathering quarters out of the bulldozer, but if you ever trip or whatever, if there's ever like a random upset, you know, then you lose all your winnings for like 50, 60, 70 bets. That said, it's still an efficient bet. It, the favorites money line, especially, are almost always an efficient bet um, in, in Vegas. Wow. I think you might have just either saved or made me a lot of money, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's more fun to bet the underdog. So, yeah, if, if you want to... <laughs> I have sacrificed enjoyment in the service of my wallet, <laughs> of your wallet. Which, which, which I should probably embrace because I have kids, uh, you know, they're, they're a bit younger than yours. So like, I still have to, <laughs> yeah, mine are, mine are, mine are old. I'm, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> well, I, I'm, you know, obviously you met your, your daughter who's uh, incredibly smart and uh, you know, on, on her way. So I mean, you should be very pleased and proud. Um, but yeah, so I ended up rooting for UNC, even though I have all these Dukey friends, sorry, Dukey friends out there, including, uh, someone who's very near and dear to, to, uh, forward who's Zach Grauman, my campaign manager, who I literally think flew into new Orleans, uh, to, to watch that crushing loss. But you, but you just, I just found myself rooting for the scrappy underdogs and that they were less talented, but they were playing freer and like, you, you could kind of sense the moment getting to the Duke players. And so as a result, <laughs> you just kind of like, you know, wanted, wanted UNC to prevail. I don't know if anyone like, so, uh, you know, Daryl was uh, doing his job, uh, overseas, but like, I don't know if any, like Matt or Kate, did you have the same sense when you were watching that thing? So I got a little emotional about coach K. Uh, he's been my rival since I was a little girl as a Kentuckian. And so then I was like, Oh, I'm going to miss coach K. So then I was like, well, then do they deserve it? And then I was like, no. And then, so I was very back and forth. And now I don't know about the championship because I really don't like KU. So, <laughs> 
I, I might be for UNC for this game. Yeah, so one of the things that happens to me too is that, so I, I don't watch that many college basketball games, um, but if you watch a team, you become familiar with the players and then now you like very much kind of root for the folks you're familiar with. So now having watched that game, I, I, I like now like this UNC squad. <laughs> I'm like, go. That's one of the main positives of college basketball in the draft for the NBA is that these players come in with, with some name recognition. Uh, which is which is hugely valuable to the NBA. Um, you know, if high schoolers, you know, I know them. A lot of the people tuning in may know them, but they don't. You know, like people don't know that name unless they did go to the NCAA tournament and things like that. And and Kate, I think you'll learn to hate Coach John Shire as well. So I think you'll be fine with your uh, with your. You can have your hatred move move forward. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about that because that's highly interesting. There was a point in the not so distant past when I, I think there was a bias against international draft prospects. Uh, and then there was a minute where that overcorrected the other direction. Yeah, that's the name that pops to mind. Maybe Bargnani. Bargnani, Bargnani? You, you live Bargnani. So because you're a Knicks fan, right? Am I right? If I'm I did live Bargnani. Uh, you know, that, so... Um, so there's a period when it just went the other direction. Everyone was looking for like the next, uh, I, I, who was it? The next, uh, you know, Dirk, Dirk. I guess. The next Dirk, Dirk for sure. Um, I can talk about retired players. So you, you notice I'm using names. So I can't yeah, talk sure. about who aren't playing anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it absolutely overcorrected. I mean, obviously the uh, the foundational players were, you know, Sabonis, his father. Um, Holy um, shit, Arvidas Sabonis. Man, yes. by the t- by the time that guy came over, he'd already lost his uh, you know jumping ability, and he was still. But he good. was still amazing, right? So that's that. Yeah, that's a that's a great great memory, and uh, yeah, it was basically Lithuanian players. Like they called them Russian players, but they were really Lithuanian players. So it, you know, probably the Russian team in '92 that faced the Dream Team, I believe, was all Lithuanian players except maybe one or two. I, I'm pretty sure all the starters were, were Lithuanian. Oh, this is a trivia question. We'll see how you do, Andrew. There are two countries in the world where basketball is the number one sport that's watched. Uh, I gave away one. Lithuania is one of the places where basketball is number one. There's one other country in the world that has basketball number one. It's a very hard answer, so I might just have to give it to you quickly. <laughs> If, uh, I, I'm gonna guess another one of the like small Eastern European things. So I'm just gonna guess like Croatia or Serbia, one of those two. That's what I would have gone with. It turns out uh, soccer, real football, is bigger there. The Philippines is the other country. Actually. Well, I, I should have known that as a proud Asian. Oh, you know, there was actually a dude who was like um, running this like Filipino basketball league who was like pitching me on this. That's uh, a real thing, actually. Quite a few. NBA players end up in the Philippine league. Either either they're not good enough for you know the Euro League, one of the main European teams, or it's someone who's you know 34, still need still wanting to play and make money. Uh, Luis Scola didn't play in the Philippines, but he told me he's a very smart guy. We had from Argentina. He was on the great Argentinian team. He said, I'm gonna play basketball until someone tells me I can't make money anymore. So if it's gonna be in Argentina. He went to China. He went to Italy. He's now running a team in Italy, where I am. So, so, uh, so to the point, uh, do you think now it's uh, it's balanced uh, accurately if someone's international versus college? Because it was like underweighted for sure. There were inefficiencies, and then it was like everyone was going after the next Dirk, and you drafted some some dudes too high. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. The the joke was if you added a an itch to anyone's name in college, they would go up five to ten spots. Or, or um, wait, I just want to throw the other guy in there, Yi Jian Lian, like the famous oh, yeah. like workouts Very against good. the chair. And and as an <laughs> and as an Asian guy, like I was really rooting for Yi. <laughs> he, he he turned into a very good player in, in the CBL, the Chinese basketball league. Um, but obviously, no one in the United States saw that. Um, I think yeah, the expectations hurt him. For example, so you, your question is a great one. It was way underrepresented, like. Teams should have been desperate to go get, you know, um, Oscar Schmidt or like some of these famous, uh, you know, players. Uh, they then 
they've been overcorrected. I actually think at this point they're they're now back to slightly undervalued. Yeah, I, I think there's been quite a few failures, and I think you know teams are slightly uh, slightly undervaluing them. There's there's some very very you know obvious counter examples that you can talk about the all MVP candidates and things like that, but the next tier down, I think, is a little bit um, is a little bit underpicked at this point. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. So I feel like you're being uh, very, very diligent heading over to Europe to watch uh, someone play. Um, uh, I feel like as a GM, uh, you know, you obviously have to allocate your time in the way you think it's going to be most um, uh, effective. Uh, so what goes into some observing someone play live that you can't see on tape? Uh, and uh, in this case, you probably had scouts check out whoever the heck the prospects are. Is it the kind of thing where it's like, look, I've had scouts see some prospects like four or five times, but you just need to see and feel the player live? Yeah, so the answer is different for my role as, as the president or a scout. Um, so there's two things that I, that's such a good question, but it's the first question that, that, that I think people should ask. Um, so I like to see them live once. There are some things you, you, you can pick up. They're very hard to know how to value though. And honestly, they can be very misleading. So I like what you said earlier, where you were like, I feel like I'm pretty unbiased. Generally, that only comes from someone who literally tries to train their brain to not be biased. Like, you know, you're still going to be biased, but you read both the New York Times and The Economist or The Wall Street Journal. You, you intentionally follow people on Twitter who you think are abhorrent, abhorrent people because you want to understand their perspective, right? Like, you have to intentionally... I, I, that, yeah, right? I, I just want to throw interject something. I took a test that is out there and I, I, I don't know what it's called now, but it's called red brain, blue brain. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was designed to measure partisan bias. Uh, and they told me that I had a very rare zero. Oh. <laughs> so I was very, I very proud. That. I was like, wow, like, you know, <laughs> like, like genuinely independent, but uh, continue. That's pretty cool. I actually want to take that to see, see how I turn out. And, and I'm, I'm assuming that's not measuring like your policy views and things like that. I think that's what's measuring is like how to, how skewed is the information you process. Dude, I, I don't know how, I mean, they, they tested this shit. It was like out of Harvard. Um, and I have to see what they're doing with it. We actually tried to connect them to Van Jones because like they wanted to popularize it, which I was all for. Um, but uh, I'll give you an example, like one uh, question on it was like, what is the family name in uh, who stars in Duck Dynasty? 
uh, and uh, I did not know. <laughs> I have to admit, I don't remember. I think I watched it a couple of times when it was big. Yeah. But but uh, apparently that's uh, or like who directed the movie uh, Get Out? What uh, was one on the Get other Out? Part. I thought it was you know Jordan Peele. Uh, yeah, so apparently if you knew that, then like you're, you're much more likely to be a Democrat, um, whereas yeah. if you knew the Duck Dynasty thing, you're much more likely to be a Republican. So it, it was uh, so it was like it was interesting where I was like, oh, shit, like that that shit works was my response. Um, but they were like, well, you know, we've, we've tested this thing like five ways to Sunday and like, yeah, it works. <laughs> well, that that's actually a funny thing from my prior career. I'm doing a lot of forecasting and things like that. I'm always amazed, like, if you give someone a survey instrument of 10 to 30 questions, and then you just literally read the answers back to them, they'll go like, oh, my God, how did you, how did you know, like, all these things? I'm like, yeah, you just literally told us, like, apparently you can also, I know with the automated things that create problems on social media in terms of people, you know, getting pushed, you know, more and more extreme content and things like that. They can they can like peg you in like I don't know like five web links almost like the sites you yeah visit apparently there are these things where just a few stupid survey questions and they can really freaking home that's it yeah Duck yeah we we think we're so complex out. it's tough man we all get get segmented into you know thirty two categories or whatever well to me like we used to say it in consulting when I, you know basically like we we would go and read the read the client's watch and then say it back to them look your watch says. 5 30 and they go oh my god like how did you know it was 5 30 that's such a good study so, like, <laughs> so yeah people should be skeptical of uh these instruments sometimes and not be quite as amazed <laughs> honestly not that so, so you were talking about the biases that come with uh seeing someone in person oh yeah yeah so um well i have a couple things so i feel like if it's someone who we might select I like to see them in person and talk to them. I would say that actually there's this overwhelming evidence that the interviews and talking to them are actually probably skew your decision-making more than, more than helps it. But I go into it feeling like I'm going to weight it very low because I know the predictive power of interviews and things like that. Generally, if you're doing an interview, you're mostly testing for a person's ability to interview not their ability to play basketball or ability to, to be a campaign manager for you or anything. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's its own skill being good at interviewing and it doesn't predict a lot of it. It doesn't predict much else. Uh, that said, I, I don't want to actually select a player, turn to the owner of the 76er and he'll be like, well, what is he like as a person? I'll be like, Search me, man. I just saw some tape. Yeah. <laughs> I, I we're giving him six to seven million dollars, but I've never, you know, I have no idea. <laughs> um, I actually think our owners might be okay with that. So I like that. Also, like you do pick up things, the pregame habits. Like there was a situation at the game tonight in Bologna. Uh, again, you don't know how to weight these things, but you pick things up, cues. Uh, one of the players hit the ball out of bounds in a scrum. And the ref, it was one of the weirdest situations I've seen. The referee called it out on him and he actually hit it out, but it was a very hard call to make. The, the player went out of his way to go to the ref and be like, hey, ref, that was a great call. You got it exactly right. I hit it out. And the ref had no interest. He kept ignoring him. The ref kept like trying to get him to go away. And this guy's like trying to be a nice guy. <laughs> and the ref's like, stop talking to me. <laughs> But it was like interesting that he felt it was. Real. I mean, I think he's trying to influence the ref, obviously. But I, I just found it fascinating that he was insistent on making sure the ref knew that he thought it was a good call. <laughs> that is, you know, certainly, you know, there's no other way to to get that except to to be there in and person. When we, when we pick someone this year, we're going to be like, he picked him because he he was friendly with the refs. He's a sportsman. You like to yeah. like pick you pick that story out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this, but uh, the NBA playoffs are approaching. I'm actually going to tell you a story and you don't have to comment, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm like friendly with uh, an NBA player. Um, mm -hmm. He's on one of like the teams that's going to be in the play-in, uh, yeah, that mm -hmm. 7, 8, 9, 10. Um, and he said the one team we don't want to see is the Philadelphia 76ers. So I, I guess you can hear that and like it. Uh, he was just like, we're, we're just trying to not play the Sixers. <laughs> 
Well, um, yeah, you have to, it's hard to, to manipulate it until the last day. So I do like what the league's doing this year. They're, and they did it last year. They're, they're doing what the Premier League does. Is they're going to start all the games at the same time. So it's harder for teams to easily know exactly what they, what outcome they want. There, there is some very limited internet movement around saying that the number one seed should be able to choose their opponent. Uh, have you seen or heard anything about that? Would you be for it? Yeah, the G League did that. I would be for it. Um, I actually was against it um, initially, and I'm usually for everything. Honestly, I love, I love new rules because usually if if someone's proposing it, it's probably got a lot behind it because people hate change. Uh, I was sort of against it because I like the variance. So all it does, so the NBA already has the most the most sure advancement. So the one seed beats the eight team at, at the highest rate of any sport. The two beats the seven. So I liked that there was these random things like Brooklyn. I can talk about teams where Brooklyn obviously is Yeah, Brooklyn has to be the scariest fucking eight seed in the history of the world, you know? Like it's <laughs> extremely scary. Last year the Lakers were thought of as, you know, pretty scary as well. Um, because they were injured and things like that. Or, you know, if Denver were to get all their players back, or you know, they're or there's some the scary lower team. Yeah, seven or Yeah, eight. the Clippers get all their players back. So, you know, I I have no inside info. I have no idea if these players are coming back. Yep. But that would be those are the kinds of things that keep you up in that because you play 82 games, and you're like, oh, we positioned ourselves well. And now here comes, you know, Brooklyn, who, you know, maybe is the quality of a one seed. Yeah. So, so you'd be for what, so what, what changed your mind in terms of being against it and now you're for it? Probably being a good team or self-interest, like most things in life. (laughs) (laughs) If we actually got the top seed, I'd like to be able to select, uh, I'd like to be able to select and avoid, you know, having to play a Brooklyn, for example. Well, you know, it's true. I mean, you guys could still wind up with the number one seed. So it makes sense. You'd be, we could. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, frankly, to win the title, you got to beat everybody. When we were in Houston facing Golden State, we pretty much had modeled it out. It was like a 94% chance we were going to face Golden State at some point. And our goal was really just to win the title. So we were like, does it really matter if it's the first round or the third round? The reality is it does matter for your fans. Like it's fun to advance and get farther. But in terms of your title odds, at least at that time when there was a dominant team like Golden State, there isn't now. And you know you're going to face them, then it's not it's not as big of a deal to face them in the first round, second round, or third round. Oh, incidentally, I texted with our mutual friend Jeremy Lin, and he says hello. Uh, oh, great! Yeah, no, I love Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Apparently- I think that he would have been huge. The injury really sort of hurt. You know, affected his career, unfortunately. Yeah. Apparently the feeling's mutual. He's he still uh, loves you too, Daryl. Um, and, and I and I and I can tell my own Jeremy. So I, mean, I don't know if people know this, but like I, I'm I'm a huge Jeremy Lin fan, as you can imagine, being an Asian guy who plays basketball and seeing like my dream play out in real life, where he became point guard for the New York Knicks. Uh, and then when they uh, actually you were a part of this, what am I talking about? When he left, when he left New York for Houston, with the contract you gave him. Uh, and, and the Knicks didn't match. I then divorced the Knicks. I was like, I can't deal with this shit. Like these guys, like this is the team that played that paid Jerome James thirty million, and paid Eddie Curry fifty six million. It's like they can't pay Jeremy Lin, like you know whatever the heck the Rockets are paying him. Um, well, and- you know, there's a lot to that story. I'll let you say it, but there's a lot. To, well, I mean, I'm sure Jeremy told you all that was going on behind the scenes there. So. I mean, we just, uh, you know, I actually haven't talked to Jeremy about it because I thought it would be kind of like, uh, you know, uh, like a potentially like awkward or painful subject. Uh, like, I just know this stuff from like the um, from Carmelo's communication and like Dolan stuff. But like as a longtime Knicks fan, where Jeremy Lin was like the ray of sunshine um, for us to lose him over money just like was just my breaking point. And the Knicks had problems you know, in terms of their management and whatnot uh, anyway. So I said, screw it. I am breaking up with the Knicks. Um, one of the best decisions I've ever made. I'm sorry, Knicks fans who are on this thing, but, uh, and I get it. Cause if you didn't have like as strong an attachment to Jeremy as I did, then you'd be like, well, you know, like hate to lose him, but you know, life goes on. Um, but I, I was like a hardcore Knicks fan and then broke up with him. I spent a year as like a vagabond. I actually bought some rockets paraphernalia. You'll be happy to know. So I was like, screw it. I'll like just follow Jeremy to the team. Then, you know, you guys got James Harden. So Jeremy had a secondary role, but then a little while later, the Brooklyn Nets, 
um, signed Jeremy uh, as like their centerpiece essentially during this rebuilding phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I guess I'm a Nets fan now. So like I brought uh, my kids to see Jeremy play um, and, you know, he got injured very badly, like pretty quick. Um, and, and so that, you know, and then his career really hasn't um, bounced back. Um, but it, it's pretty wild, man. I mean, you were like directly for like my entire, <laughs> you, you were directly caused my entire yeah. sports world so we were, uh, to reorient. The reason we went for Jeremy, just obviously you saw his talent, is we were at the time, it was to your point, pre James Harden. We were chasing variants, as we call it, anywhere. So you really only win in the NBA when you're um, with top players, top 5, 10, 15 players in the league. Those are the ones that drive your ability to win the title. You need the good role players too, but you know you, all the good role players in the world won't add up to a title. And so we were chasing, you know, Jeremy, you know, for a time before he got hurt, had a very non-zero chance to be an NBA all-star level player. Uh, I know a lot of people would disagree with that, but that's very hindsight bias. Like, you know, I think we had our, the odds of Jeremy uh, being an all-star in the five to 10% range. And that's actually really good. Like people are like, Oh, it's only five to 10%. That's really high. If you think about it, that's, you know, you're one of the 24 best players out of 450 in the league. That's a really, and, and the 450 in the league are already an extraordinarily exclusive group. And you're in the top 24 is insanely uh, high achievement. So to have even 5% odds is, is something almost nobody has any chance to even talk about. You mean I don't have a 5% chance of being an NBA all-star, Daryl? I'm hurt. <laughs> yeah, I will say, though, I will say something that not a lot of people know, that you you were in the NBA draft at one point, Andrew. We, we had a chance to draft you. Um, just based on how the NBA rules work, even Kate was in the NBA draft. Everyone, everyone who turns 22 in the calendar year is in the NBA draft and eligible to be drafted uh, anywhere in the world. So it's, it's only someone who's younger than 22 has to declare for the draft. You know, generally, though, there's no surprises. Although, little side story, this is not my idea. I believe this was Kevin Pritchard, the, the GM of Indiana, who came up with this. His idea was, you know, late second round picks have a really extraordinarily low hit rate. We, you know, we've had some good success and you can name the Ginobili's of the world. But it's low. So his idea was to basically sell it, you know, draft the most interesting man in the world and sell the pick. Oh, so, yeah. It's a know. good idea. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's a good idea, but it's an idea. It's an idea I thought people would find it. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, you could cash out a higher level because I you're going to sell second round draft picks for like, you know, 800,000, a million, 3 million, whatever it is, you could sell it for like 10 million and you're a genius. It is capped now. You can only sell it for like, I think the cap now is 6.6 million or something like that. Only 6.6 million, Andrew. (laughs) See, there, there, there you go. Um, I'm friends with a guy named Dan Porter who started a company called Overtime, and now they have their uh, Overtime Elite. Um, yeah. Then there's also the G League Ignite. Um, so there are these like new leagues that are popping up that are essentially yeah. alternatives to college. Um, in theory, I feel like they would be better at preparing kids for the pros because now, this is not a knock, whatever, but like a lot of these kids in my mind are like kind of pretending to go to college. <laughs> so it, it feels like they would take away the pretense and they would get professional level training, maybe more NBA relevant coaching. Um, you know, the, the flip side of that is that, you know, if they don't end up uh, making the pros, then like it, it could be they, they don't have um, as strong a set of options. Um, but it seems like it would make scouting a breeze because you don't have to go, you don't have to hop a plane to Europe. You can just go to Atlanta and like watch multiple players. Uh, do you have a read on how you compare uh, these new efforts and, and leagues to? Yeah, I would say there's there's three paths, and I think you know the commissioner Silver has uh, talked about this, but um, you know their overtime elite is an emerging one, and I think the NBA is involved with that one, the G League has been a direct um, you know, path as well. And then the one of the real emerging paths is through Australia. So a lot of 
a lot of players are choosing Australia because they can, you know, they, they, they'll pay a decent amount. They speak English, you know, Australia is a nice country, all those kinds of things. So Australia has become a pretty competitive path with uh, the NCAA as well. You know, I think everyone should just choose whatever. I, I like that there's more paths for people and they can make the best choice for themselves. Um, I know there's some, you know, people who sort of wax poetic about uh, when everyone stayed three or four years in college. But I, I do think, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm big on choice, whether it be. I know. Ranked, that's, why, that's why you're here. That's why yeah, right, here, yeah, but... voting or any other innovations. Yeah, uh, yeah. So before we open it up to questions, you're actually someone who's been pro third party or some kind of political dynamism for uh, quite some time. Do you want to talk about what brought you here today? Really grateful that you're here to talk to some forward party uh, donors and supporters. Um, but yeah, like to describe like how you wound up in sort of a third party camp. Well, I'd say I think ranked choice voting was one big thing that brought me to your platform along with, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I have to admit initially, and I had heard the idea of UBI before, uh, it's, it's sort of one that you have to like, consider and think about before you go, okay, makes a lot of sense. So, um, but in terms of, I, I'm big on people being able to choose being uh, self-actualized. Um, and, you know, I think that's where you get, you get the, the most performance is when someone is uh, able to, and not everyone can do this, obviously, but they're able to choose something close to, you know, their work matches you know, the challenge of the work is both not too hard or too easy and also in a vocation that, that you're excited about. And I think, um, you know, things like UBI would allow people to get closer to that. Uh, and then in terms of ranked choice voting, to me, that's just math. Like, it just makes sense. Like, we, yeah. want, to select, we want after, like, ranked choice voting, and there are different voting mechanisms, and we do a lot of voting in our draft process, actually. Um, you want the most people at the end of voting to feel the best about the candidate that was selected. And, you know, a two-party system without ranked choice voting doesn't, you know, gives you like, it's almost like if you were to say, let's design the worst system yeah. possible. It's the worst. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, that, that you know, again, I, I didn't know prior to your presidential run, I had some friends who are friends of yours um, in your previous, uh, you know, venture, uh, for America, is that the, is that yes. the name of it? Yeah. Um, they knew you. We didn't know each other. But when you when I saw your candidate, I asked some of my friends, they were like, oh, yeah, that's a guy you want to really pay attention to. So that's when I started paying attention. And then you were the only one actually trying to say anything intelligent on the stage. So that, that appealed to me. So I get a lot of trouble in politics. I'm really more about the people. So, I, you know, I like Mitt Romney. I just, I've always liked him as a person. I got in a lot of trouble earlier in my career when I was saying I like Mitt Romney. I just think he's a good human being that I would be fine with leading something. He's, he, strikes, he strikes me as a moral human. Yeah, and I think that I felt vindicated when he's taken some, you know, positions that have been hard for him that were the right positions in my mind. And I think, you know, you're... You know, again, we don't know each other super well, but I saw you as a high quality person. I could feel like oh, thank I you. could get behind that person. Uh, so I look more at that than policy, frankly. I suppose if there's a policy that would be that's completely abhorrent, I probably wouldn't support the candidate. But generally, people are in some policy range that's not uh, not completely crazy, or you wouldn't even make it through the filtering process to be on a stage somewhere. You know, one of the things I've been struggling with, Daryl, uh, is that at, at this point, your policy, uh, your, your policy stance is more of a tribal marker than anything else at this point. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and then people yeah. use it to being like, oh, uh, you can't be for this person because they're for this. Or that. And, and like we're at a point in American life where it's pretty much irrelevant what each of us is for <laughs> because, because the system's not going to produce much of anything. Like, you know? <laughs> Can I tell a story on that? And this was where I, the, the sadness of politics, I won't say the politician, but I knew one of the candidates running for a very prominent office and I knew his campaign manager very well through my consulting years. And when he was putting together his policy statement, one of his policy statements was a very anti-immigration stance. He was running as a Republican. And I was like, well, 
he's not anti-immigration. He's pro-immigration. What are you talking about? It's insane to be, I'm just giving my personal beliefs now. It's insane to be anti-immigration in the United States. Like, it's the foundation of our country. It's one of the reasons why we're one of the best countries in the world. It's so dynamic. So to be anti-immigration to me is actually insane. Like one of the craziest things that's happened in the United States that makes me the most sad. So again, this was a candidate I knew directly. I'm like, they're not anti-immigration. He's like, yeah, he has to say that or he will not get- Do the Republican primary, sure. You know, yeah, I, I, I know so people are running- sad is that? I know people are running as Republicans right now who are saying shit. I know they ha- I, they do not think or believe at all. Yeah, which is awful, right? That the process is forcing that. Now, I understand there are a lot of things that we have to go through that sometimes we make compromises to achieve a higher goal. But like, that's a really sad one. Like that you that you're forced to be anti-immigration to <laughs> to get to a higher office. And to me, it's. It, it, it's a symptom of the dementia of the two-party system, honestly, Daryl, because, you know, there's like a clutch of people. They just happen to be highly overrepresented in the Republican primary. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing, I'm like super, super free speech, right, as you know, and, and sort of famously, and, and you know, defending my friends uh, in, in, in Hong Kong, but the, neither party seems to be for free speech. It's like actually terrifying. Like, well, it's, it's because each side now uh, is rewarded for having this kind of uh, ideological back and forth. Um, so if you if you say like, "Hey, live and let live," then that actually weakens your hand <laughs> right. in terms of like the two party dynamic that is going to you know drive us um, insane and to, to civil war and the rest of it. In in in, in my uh, estimation. Yeah, I saw you tweeting about the the Civil War book, and it was uh, I have not read it. I just, you know, read the summary like every other person on Earth does now, and and it was it was pretty. Uh, the bullet points were like, I'm like, okay, I see, I see where some of these things can be pretty worse. I don't know what DefCon we're on, but you know, according to like, her, we're at like DefCon three of five. Um, yeah. which is still much worse than most Americans. The nice thing about being a DEF CON 3 is you don't have to remember if 5 is bad or 1 is bad. You just yeah, you're right in the middle. It's good. It's, so. it's true. Um, well, thank you, Daryl. We're going to turn to some questions, but first yeah. we are going to announce a winner of the Forward Party swag for being here today, and his name is Michael Asso. Michael, thank you very much. Hey, Kate, do we have anything? Uh, do you want to say anything to or for Michael? I don't know if Michael's here today. Oh, there you are, Michael. Look at that. Yeah, Michael's on. Michael, I'll be emailing you uh, the free how to get the free merch, but uh, congratulations. Thank you, Michael Asso. Yeah, I actually met, met Michael when I was on tour. Um, great young man. Um, super exciting. And, um, and now, yeah. And was it, was it in Houston? Yeah, it was in Houston. Fantastic, Michael. And now let's take some questions. I, I I've seen some in the chat. Uh, people have been entering them diligently. They're probably for Daryl and not me, which is delightful. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, doesn't happen often. I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're used to me, Daryl. They hang out uh, every once in a while with me. Uh, I saw you had so many people tune in, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. I, I, I assumed that we were going to uh, be you and I talking to the, to the, the ferns in the background of your, spot there but it looks like you had a huge turnout which is awesome yeah yeah no it's good fun um i mean shit i mean i learned a lot from this again you saved me a ton of money i just have to fucking start learning the debt favorites which is like you know, be a it's just boring you just the, the, that's a good lesson for you if you want to make money you have to like be boring you have to be vanguard you have to just take a little small bit over a long period that's <laughs> so. <laughs> like it's very good advice we sense it yeah. the house always wins etc cetera, etc cetera. so exactly. uh, so so matter kate i'll let you moderate go ahead and shout out a question sounds good and i'm going to try and uh switch back and forth a little bit between basketball and politics here and uh we've got a few that kind of bridge the gap between the two of them um and i will direct some of the more controversial ones daryl towards andrew in case you are not able to uh, weigh in on them for I, i'm i'm look i'm not a politician but i'm very good at, if i can't answer i'll just say i can't answer it I don't mind being asked, though. Well, well, Jacob asked, we're going to start off with a a fun basketball one. Picking from all retired players, can we get your all-time starting five? Huh. 
Oh, retired players. Um, geez, uh, good one. Well, I, I guess you gotta have gotta have Kareem on there. Uh, so that's an easy one. Um, I think you have to have Larry Bird. Uh, I think you have to have Michael Jordan. So we got three. Yeah. Um, I think it's harder. I think. I have Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett in mind, but I'm probably biased by like a, a recency thing. Well, what I'd say, Andrew, and I get a lot, of, a lot of trouble when I say this, but you know, Kevin Garnett is probably almost certainly better than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, I know, like now, I'm gonna that, that's gonna be the clip when I get aggregated and hated on after a thing. Um, but the reality is like the players are getting better and better and better. And it's like, you can measure it and provable. You just look at shooting percentages on common areas of the floor and things like that. The players are getting more skilled. Kevin was, I think arguably the, you know, he's at least in the discussion for the greatest defensive player of all time. Um, and, you know, the biggest, you know, obviously the 2008 team, the Doc Rivers coach to the title in Boston uh, to me, Kevin Garnett was the biggest driver of that and his defensive prowess. So I'm struggling after MJ, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett. I could uh, I could cop out and just be like Jordan and Bird, but like I don't know <laughs> if I believe that shit. So I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that's, that's interesting is so Kevin McHale is an, obviously our coach in Houston, amazing coach, amazing guy. Uh, he would always tell me how bad Larry was on defense. So. So it's it's hard to be bad on defense and being one of the all-time greats. But the, here's a here's a trivia question for you, Andrew. You again, I'm, I'm asking you hard ones. So Larry Bird is his last year at Indiana State. Uh, how many rebounds per game did he average? Do you think? I mean, shit. It's college. He's uh, you know like six eight six nine. So I'm gonna say like ten. It was fourteen. Which wow. is like insanity because it's a slower, you know, it's a there's fewer possessions, all these things. So, like, anyway, the only reason I say that is like Larry Bird was absolutely insane. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm stuck at three. I'll have to work on the other two. We can come back to this one, Matt. <laughs> like, the, I think it's got another interesting aspect too. Oh shit! Maybe I throw also, Pippin in there. Pippin was a beast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think we've we've seen this on Olympic teams like, too. You also have to consider the ability to play together as well as just the the innate skill. Well, so I have it. I'm like Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett are kind of my versatile big men, and then Pippen can be like the kind of spider man in the middle, and You're then like the, the most of the ball handling. And I need one guy who's like a sweet shooter. Maybe I'm gonna. This is a little bit of an overrate, but I'm Mark just gonna maybe throw Ray Allen in there just to freaking bomb it. I was laughing. You reminded me of the dog and up when you when you're like, wait a minute, Pippin, squirrel. You know, <laughs> like, you're like, there's all these great players. Yeah, we only get to pick five though, so it's hard. I, I if it was the, if I could talk about the current players, it would be a lot easier for me. Like I we have reams of data on who the best players are over the last 25 years, but the the, the players before that are very very hard to judge. I just Kareem has had insane efficiency numbers for so long. It's, it's pretty hard. Well, and, and strong defensive numbers too. So. Look at that! He's plucked Kareem out of like the you know seventies, eighties. Yeah, he, he's only the 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 leading scorer all time. You know, um, so it's hard to find him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, have you watched an episode of this freaking Lakers show on HBO? Uh, this uh, I, have, I have not. I mean, actually, Adam McKay, who I love, he did Don't Look Up, did, did the show. Or I think he's producing it, but yeah, I'm sure he's helping. And um, and I haven't watched it. I, I I do need to. I do need to. I I know everyone in the NBA is really angry about the show. They're all very angry. So. Uh, I, it, it's got Adam McKay's fingerprints all over it. Um, I, I think you'd enjoy it. I'm enjoying the heck out of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've heard the person who really hates it is Jerry West. It, it makes it Jerry Jerry West West. Not seeming like a, you know, like a, a goon much more so than, you know, he's ever seemed in terms of public persona. So who the hell knows? <laughs> if, there's, if there's a, if there's a documentary or something about the, the bulls or the Lakers, if you're named Jerry, you're going to get crushed. Jerry Krause or Jerry West, you end up on the short end of the so. um, But yeah, watch it. It's fun. Uh, Adam, Adam McKay, um, it's interesting. He's, uh, you know, I haven't sat down with Adam at all, but like there are a bunch of people around that I that I think are like political independents and are, are very interested and interesting. 
he's uh he's probably a one issue guy as far as i know i know him pretty well so he's 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 climate change which is important it probably wouldn't be if i had to pick one issue it wouldn't be my one issue but it is for him and for good reasons i think he's that's why he made the whole movie obviously don't look up was, oh that, that's out. why that's why like uh magic johnson and cream are just talking about recycling all the time this show no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> They invent bottled water or something. <laughs> I yeah, uh, don't look up. Great movie. Climate change, obviously, you know, may be the most pressing existential issue. Um, you know, one one of the cases we're making is that no matter what issue you care about, if you don't get political reform, we're not gonna solve it. You know what I mean? I guess like at this point. I think, I think it's a great point. And I think I connected you with Mike Zarin in Boston, who's trying to push rank choice voting. Did I, I can't remember, did it win in Boston? They, in Massachusetts. Um, it, uh, I don't think it did win. Um, it was on the ballot. It, it would have won if a couple of key officials hadn't come out and shat on it down the stretch. Um, so, so that's, you know, it's like existing officials will rarely be for a system that uh, brings genuine competition. <laughs> right, yeah. I want to stop this gerrymandering thing that's it, helping me get elected for 43 years. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, shit, hurt. it's gone from 83% non-competitive districts to 90% non-competitive districts. It really? It's like that. Like the parties just don't like competition at all. Well, this, this brings up a point. Math can be used for good or evil, right? So, so gerrymandering is like, taking really smart mathematicians and really figuring out how to create entrenched power. You can, you know, to me, like people hate Facebook and there's a lot of good reasons to hate Facebook, but like, to me, like technology is just a tool. It can be used really horribly, right. Or it can be used for sharing, you know, baby photos that, you know, with people you don't see. So like it, to me, like people point too much. Like, same with crypto. I was like crypto, they, they, no one seems to be in the middle on it. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be a useful tech for what solutions it solves. People can use it really horribly and hack and do all these things, or they can use it really well. Like, why? I, I don't understand. People can't seem to be in the middle. This is like my like people can't seem to have a, a an average opinion on anything. Yeah, like a nuanced, textured uh, opinion because we're in the land of polarization. It's either good or yeah. evil. It's either the best thing ever, or the worst thing ever. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and one of the things you have to avoid is something like crypto, for example, getting politicized, because as soon as it gets politicized and one side loves it and the other side hates it, then, you know, it'll fall prey to the system. I think it's one of the ones that they're, they're like confused. They're like, can't figure out what my tribe is telling me, like, whether I should hate it or not. I think they both like free speech. They both settled on hating crypto is my sense but you know who well knows? i'm actually working hard right now and trying to keep uh crypto from getting um squelched by dc started something called lobby three talking to various uh regulators and other folks um uh, trying to keep it from getting turned into a football well my crypto wallet thanks you yeah and uh, don't thank me yet but it's going to be an interesting <laughs> six months let's put it that way and it really is going to be six months like this it's coming down the pike. So buried in the Biden executive order was language saying he wants the legislation done in 210 days, which now is about six months from now. Uh, and that's timed because they think they're going to lose control of the, the House or maybe like, you know, both the House and the Senate in November. So they're like, hey, let's get these rules out before we're out of power. So uh, it, it really is kind of a legit scramble. Makes sense. Sorry, I keep... Oh, not People asking questions we haven't taken enough. No, not at all. It's good fun. So we'll leave the Sixers playing. The Sixers playing nine minutes. So I do have to go in. Nine oh minutes. no, we'll get. We'll let you go in eight. It'll be good. Yeah. Um. Right. Hey, thank you for doing this from afar. Yeah. Yeah. Hey Matt, do you have another couple of questions before uh, the top of the hour? <laughs> so, yeah, this is a this is a little bit related to what you all were just talking about, uh, and I know it's uh, it's topical for you, Andrew and Daryl. You spent some time in uh, a good chunk of time in Texas. Uh, and it's specifically about Will Hurd. Uh, he had an article in The Atlantic, Andrew, who was just on your show. I know you've spoken with him a little bit. And he's talking about attracting the center left and center right for a silent majority. And kind of we were just talking about how everybody's so polarized. So uh, how, how do you make that happen? And especially, you know, Will's talking about doing this down in Texas, which is seen, you know, as a Republican stronghold, but there's a lot of blue energy there. How do you, how do you build this, uh, 
this bridge between these center groups to really get people elected? You know, th this is the trillion dollar question. Uh, I'll take this because I talked to Will about it. Um, I talked to other moderate Republicans too who are trying to do the same thing Will's doing, uh, except they have to, if they go through a primary, then they end up being for shit they're not for, <laughs> to Daryl's point. Um, so Will's shot at is to try and energize uh, larger uh, slice of the population to vote in the primary. Uh, like that, that's his goal. Um, it's a tall order because there's a certain segment of the population that's conditioned to vote in the primary and then everyone else just ignores it. Um, it, it could work if you wound up with like a slew of new voters um, uh, in, in that. I mean, what we're doing with Forward is trying to make the case like, look, the primary system itself is broken. Like I applaud folks like Will who are going to try and go in and uh, enlarge the voting base so that it's less crazy. Um, but I'm, I'm dubious because, you know, I think the process is stacked against them. Um, so, you know, so that, 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 so this is the, my answer to the person who's looking at this. Like I talked to moderate Republicans and some of the moderate Republicans are leery of running in a primary for this reason, because they they know it's not going to be like a, a, a genuine conversation. Um, you're seeing some reasonable Republicans retire for this reason too. It's very tough. Um, but if you don't know who Will Hurd is, uh, he's this former CIA operative. Daryl, do you know Will? I don't know him, no. Um, you'll get to know him because he's going to be one of the, these up-and-comers who's going to fight for the soul of, uh, you know, certainly the Republican Party. Um, but you'd like him because check him out. Computer science major from Texas A&M, uh, CIA operative for nine years in Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and India, runs for Congress and wins, serves three terms, and he's the most one of the most bipartisan Republicans, only black Republican in the House for a while. Um, uh, and then he retires, and then now he's back to try and like fix shit. Um, and so he's being mentioned as a potential Republican contender um, in 24 uh, or some other race. Well, I feel terrible because clearly all computer science majors who work with the CIA are great people because I also qualify on both those accounts. Like, so. Look at this. I, I'm telling you, Will Hurd's going to be your jam. Um, so yeah. anyone who's interested in uh, I gotta Will. go. I'm going on Will Hurd's uh, Zoom in a minute here. Sorry, sorry, Andrew. I moved no, on no, to a go, new go, candidate. Go for, it, go for it. I mean, shit. So, so one of the things that's happening too is like I'm trying to help folks like Will, um, but like you know we're we're all like you know kind of aligned and tied together a little bit. Um, anyway, so we'll, we'll like, but I my interview with Will is out tomorrow. Um, if oh. anyone is into it. Matt, one last question for me and Daryl before Daryl goes and does his job. <laughs> uh, this one, this one is a little bit of a hot button issue here, but uh, people want to know if you think that Kevin Durant calling out uh, Eric Adams, New York City's mayor, about the vaccine mandates and Kyrie being able to come to the arena as a fan but not a player had an effect on the uh, the mandate decision in there. And what are your thoughts on uh, it? in either case? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I can't talk about Kevin Durant, but uh, I, I will say I'll just talk my uh, Andrew. Um, actually, no, you you didn't meet my wife. Oh no, you met my wife. You came up, right? Yeah. Oh no, you met my daughter. My wife didn't. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, she called it. She's she's one of the last baseball fans on earth. Uh, is my wife. She she's religiously a Mets fan because she's from New Jersey, that part of New Jersey. And, uh, you know, as soon as this was like, I'm telling you, like seven, eight weeks ago, she was like, as soon as the Yankees and the Mets can't play, that's when they'll change it because no one, no one cares about the Mets. So that was, she, she completely nailed it. <laughs> so my sense is that that was it. The, the, uh, lots of powerful people from the Yankees and Mets organization were able to move uh the political levers to get that to change that's my I, I i think uh, i would agree one of the open questions to me is like I, I thought to myself man how many baseball players aren't vaccinated apparently a fucking ton of them <laughs> well that's one so i've had to deal with it it's it's interesting um like a, a pretty high percentage of nba players especially at the beginning and even part of the way through were not were were not vaccinated um, I can't really tell you why that is. I ended up having lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations explaining, you know, why I thought it was a good thing. Part of the reason, and, and, and I've talked about this online quite a bit, there were a lot of noble lies told by, by people in power that I think really hurt vaccines. You know, things like, hey, masks don't do anything at the beginning because they were trying to save them for 
like th these kinds of things where they have some larger purpose, but they're they're people know they're bullshit, hurt your ability to actually get people to move later. And I think it's I think it's a real problem. So when I spoke to players one on one, for example, once you explain relative risk, and like because I had a player who had not had COVID and had did not want the vaccine, and I was like you have the easiest decision. If you've not had COVID and not had the vaccine, you're going to get one or the other. You're just going to. <laughs> so it's really picking which one you want. And, you know, generally you probably going to want the vaccine. Some people might want to just get it. I mean, especially if you're 25 and healthy, like our players are. So anyway, so that, you know, that eventually he was convinced to do it. Um, the hard ones, I had another player who had gotten COVID and was also being told to get the vaccine. Again, I would get the vaccine. That was that was the choice we made. But that's a less easy decision. That's not as straightforward as a decision as people want to make it straightforward. So he he appreciated I was like actually giving him the trade-offs versus like, you know, take vaccine, you bad person, you know, like, you know, which is basically the narrative, right? So oh yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I, it sounds like you communicated uh, with him honestly and as a human being, uh, and, and that probably helped a lot. Um, and that's a, that's a fantastic lesson for us all. Uh, it was something I learned too. It's like, it's what you're saying, but then it's like how you treat someone, how you're communicating. And the latter is sometimes more important than the former. It's like, I've said shit to someone and be like, look, I totally disagree with you, but like, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, it's cool. <laughs> right, right. Have you saw this, Andrew? Like, I'm sure you think about all these things really deeply. Now, this is my question. I'm jumping the question line. Oh, like, please. No. Like, to your point, when you when I can get one-on-one -on -one and talk politics or issues or different policies with people, it usually goes fine. You can have in their back and forth. You can hear them out. They can feel like they're very understood. And you can have a real conversation. That obviously doesn't work if you're running for president like you did, or even mayor, or like whatever role you're going for. It, has anyone solved like the ability to have like a, a communication mechanism that works in mass that doesn't like condescend to people or treat them like they're idiots? Or, like like, I, I, yeah. For, for better or for worse, Daryl, the closest solution I've seen for this is long form conversations on podcasts. Um, and, and then you're not directly communicating with someone, but you're communicating with someone else that maybe they know and trust. And then like they, they get some of the same vibe. Um, in person is probably the next best because like you can talk to a number of people if you get out there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I found that that's the single biggest way to move someone is that if they meet you in person, then it's almost impossible for them to believe bullshit about you later because they're like, wait, I met that guy and like he right. did not seem like he's like, you know, like right. out to get me or like for this crazy thing or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> yeah, it just it just doesn't scale. But I'll say I, I feel that in my job, people like stereotype because I like math and I was a computer science major like that I'm terrible at people. And generally, like when I meet someone, they're like, no, he's actually like a nice guy I can hang out with. But I could, I, I bet if you pulled, you know, there's not many people who even know who I am, but of the people who would know who I am, if you pulled them, if they had heard my name, it's got to be in the low 90% would say, oh, he probably is terrible around people even though I personally would say it's not true. Well, I, well, I think everyone here can vouch for the fact that Daryl is not terrible with people. He's actually <laughs> a very good, congenial sort. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're from the Midwest. Uh, you know, yes. you, you've kind mostly of- Mostly Ohio. Mostly Ohio. Yeah. Mostly Ohio. He's got that kind mm -hmm. of like sensible Midwestern vibe, uh, I dare say. I was born in Wisconsin, so it's very Wisconsin. Yeah, well, the, the, the non-polarized Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Daryl Morey, thank you so much. Thanks. Moving Appreciate the world everybody. forward. I'm going to say, just for the purposes of this conversation, go Sixers. Have a great time right. the rest of the night. <laughs> thank you. Cleveland, so you can say it. It's not against your nuts. So. All right, <laughs> it's all you. the best. Thank you. Bye, guys. Cheers. Bye.